Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of God. Hi again, New Hope, and thank you again, Jimmy, for reading God's Word to us. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? That's the question I really want to ask today. Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? This question has immediate relevance for all of us because we've all sinned, and we've all been sinned against. So we need to know, is forgiveness possible? Can I be forgiven for the things I've done and have failed to do? And can I forgive people who have hurt me? If so, what does that look like? So we're coming to the end of the Apostles' Creed. God willing, we'll finish next week on Easter Sunday as we look at the the resurrection and life eternal. But this week, I think it's appropriate, given that it's Palm Sunday, we're going to focus on uh, one of of those final lines. Really, it's the, the third to last line, which reads this way, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe, the Apostles' Creed says, in the forgiveness of sins. And in order to unpack what that means, I'm going to try to answer four simple questions. The first one is, what is sin? The second one is, what is forgiveness? The third one is, how is forgiveness given? Or how is forgiveness conferred? How do we get forgiveness, in other words? And then fourthly, lastly, how does forgiveness change us? How does forgiveness change us? So the first question we're going to ask is this, what is sin? If we're going to say we believe in the forgiveness of sin, we need to know what sin means, don't we? So to answer that question, and really all those questions, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, these words that Jimmy just read to us. So I'm going to invite you to open up a Bible or, or click open a device to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John is a letter that was written by John the Apostle. He was a close friend and a disciple of Jesus. And in these lines here, he tells us that, that, that this is the message that we received from Jesus. What John is burdened to communicate to us is this message. It's not his own message. It's not his own ideas. He's saying, this is what I received from Jesus. I want you to know what Jesus has told me. So let's read that that passage, those those verses, one more time. Verse 5 down to verse 10. This is the message we have received, we have heard from him, Jesus, and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the first question we're asking, what is sin? The word comes up quite a lot in those few verses. What is sin? Later on in this letter, John calls sin, quote, lawlessness. He says it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Sin is lawlessness. Here's how the New International Version, that, that translation of the Bible puts it. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So there's one of God's definitions for sin. Everyone who sins breaks the law. Sin is lawlessness. So in one sense at least, sin means breaking, uh, uh, disregarding, ignoring the law. The Bible uses the word transgressing the law. And the law that, that the Bible has in mind there isn't necessarily the laws of New York. It's the laws of God. Here's another definition of sin from 1 John, from the same letter. 1 John 5.17 says, all wrongdoing is sin. Name something that's wrong, something that's evil and hurtful. It's sin. Sin is a catch-all term. It, it captures everything, really, that's wrong with this world. Sin is a big, big word. Listen to the old Anglican theologian J.I. Packer. He asks the questions, what are sins? What are sins? And he says, sin, says the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is any want, that is any lack, of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Well, what is he saying? He's basically saying sin is me and you not conforming, not living up to, not aligning our lives with the law of God. And he goes on, quote, this echoes 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. But then, but then Packer goes on. He says, he says, sin has other aspects too. Quote, it is lawlessness in relation to God as lawgiver. It is rebellion in relation to God as rightful ruler. It is missing the mark in relation to God as our designer. It is guilt in relation to God as judge and uncleanness in relation to God as the Holy One. You see, what Packer's trying to do here, he's trying to tell us it's a, a sin is about more than breaking rules and breaking laws. Sin is personal. It is relational. It is directly against God. Not just his rules. He takes sin personal. I can relate to this to some degree. I set rules in my home. My wife and I set rules in, my, in our home. And, and, and when those rules are broken, I try not to take it personal, but it's really hard not to take it personal. I feel like, man, I thought we talked about this. These are rules that I put in place, and we talked about them, and we agreed on them. I feel like when you reject these rules, I feel like you're rejecting me. That's how I feel sometimes as an insecure parent. Now, God is not insecure. Don't, don't get that wrong. But as the holy, secure, and holy God, he gives us his law, and he says, these laws are so an expression of my heart 
and my desires for you and my authority over you that when you break these laws, you are actually rejecting me. So you see what Packard's saying. He's saying when, when we begin to peel back the layers of sin, what we see is that it's more than rule-breaking. It's a rejection of God. It's a rejection of God's rule over us, his reign over us. It's a rejection of God's design for us. Sin is a kind of mutiny. It's a kind of treason against God who designed the world. You know, Jesus taught on more than one occasion that all of God's laws could be summarized under two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Take all the commandments of God. They all fall under one of those two umbrellas. Love God, love your neighbor. Every sin in some way is a failure to do that. And as such, again, it's more than rule-breaking. It's a rejection of God's perfect design. It's a failure to love him and to love people whom he made. It's a failure to trust him and honor him. Some have said that, that sin is a matter of misplaced worship. We, we sin when we're worshiping the wrong things. I think that's a helpful facet. It's a helpful way. We can look at sin from many different angles. This is a helpful one, I think. Because sin takes my desires and makes them ultimate. Which really makes me God. Sin says what I want is the highest priority. Not what God wants. Not what my neighbor needs. Not what my family needs. Not what you need. No, no, no. It's me. I'm the highest priority. My desires must be met. As John Stott, another old Anglican theologian, put it, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Man, humans, assert themselves against God and put themselves where only God deserves to be. That's sin. It's more than rule-breaking, right? It's more than telling a white lie. You see, when we peel back the layers and we look at what sin really is, it's me putting myself where only God deserves to be, saying, I call the shots. I put my pay, myself in the place of power. You put yourself at the center of attention. You put yourself in the place of highest authority. You put yourself in the place of highest priority. This is sin. And think about how that plays out. Just think about the kinds of sins that we might struggle with. Some of us struggle with anger. What is anger? In many cases, not always, but in many cases, anger is, is me saying, I'm not getting my way, and that needs to change now. Don't you realize who I am? Some of us perhaps struggle with gossip. We, 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 we enjoy talking about other people or hearing things about other people that are not flattering, that are not helpful. Your gossip brings other people down so that you can find more acceptance, so that you can be built up and put in a place of exaltation. Your, your sinful criticism and belittling of other people, it does the same thing, doesn't it? It brings others down to bring you to a place of higher honor. If you look at every sin in this way, a spouse's infidelity says, my desires will be fulfilled regardless of how it affects anyone, regardless of the covenant that I've made before God. I will fulfill my desires. That's what matters, even if it hurts you. 
Your porn addiction says the same thing. I will get satisfaction no matter who it hurts. That's why some have said that all sin is idolatry. It's idolatry. It's, it's loving an idol that is something that is not God more than God. It's taking something that is not God and making it into a kind of God. Honoring it, worshiping it, serving it. And that idol might be some of the things that I listed just now. Those idols might be comfort. They might be control, approval, power. All sin, all sin centers on self. Oh, it's so much more than rule breaking, isn't it? Here's one other way to think about sin that's really rooted in in our passage in 1 John 1, verse 5. In verse 5, John says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So here's another way to think about what sin is. Sin is walking in darkness. Sin is abandoning light. Sin is a failure to live in the light of what's real and true. And when we see light here, think about light here as as truth. Think about light as reality. Sin is a walking away from reality. It's embracing the delusion that somehow I will find what I'm looking for by abandoning God and the truth that he's communicated to me. It's it's the belief that I will somehow find satisfaction in what I'm really after if I abandon the design that God has lovingly communicated to me. Sin is walking in darkness. Heading into sin means rejecting reality. And maybe you can look back on very poor decisions that you've made in the past. Perhaps you can think about things that you did that you knew you were headed for trouble, but you walked forward anyway with the hope that maybe it would work out or maybe it wouldn't blow up. Maybe you wouldn't get caught. Maybe it would work out. And so you're walking towards it, but in the back of your head, maybe it's not just your own thoughts. It's the Spirit of God himself telling you you're walking into a deep, dark forest. And the only thing you can be sure you're going to encounter pain and danger and destruction. But you reject that reality. We reject that reality. We leave the light behind and we walk in the darkness. We've all done this. We all do this. And, and John's very realistic about that because look what he says in, in, in verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's admitting and he's putting himself in there. He's saying, not just you, me. If I tell you that I have no sin, I'm a liar. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. Because God has told us that we all do have sin. Can we all admit that? Can can we at least, even if we don't really believe in the forgiveness of sins, can you say this, "I, I believe that I have sin? Can we start there? The Anglican Book of Common Prayer puts it succinctly and beautifully. 
There's a section in the Book of Common Prayer, which is a book that's been used for centuries for worship in the Anglican Church in England and and in other parts of the world. And and there's a section there that reads this way. It's 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 a section on confession, and it says, We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no spiritual health in us. These are powerful words because you see where the, where the book of common prayer starts. It doesn't even start with the bad things you've done. It starts with all the good things you chose not to do. Uh, theologians call these sins of omission. The times you could have been loving and you chose not to. The times you could have been helpful and caring or forgiving or kind and merciful, but you chose to be selfish and self-centered and proud. The times you could have put away your anger, but instead you just poured more fuel on it. The times you could have stopped the conflict, but instead you instigated it. The things that we have left undone. And on top of that, the things that we have done that we ought not to have done. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. This is the result of sin. It separates us from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is what happens. Our sins alienate us from God, distance us from the God who loves us. That's a little bit on what sin is. Second question, what's forgiveness? It gets better. It gets happier. It gets gets more joyful. There's good news in here. What is forgiveness? According to the Bible, sin brings severe, drastic results. Sin alienates us from God, as we just saw, and it also brings us under the just wrath of God. It earns his punishment. The Bible often uses these two metaphors to talk about the effects of sin. It talks about sins in terms of debt and in terms of defilement. Two Ds, debt and defilement. We, we sang about both of these, if you noticed, in the, in the songs that uh, Janine and, and the rest of the worship team led us through. In other words, our sin incurs debt towards God, debt we can't pay. And our sins leave us dirty and, and guilty before God. And, and what forgiveness is, forgiveness takes care of both of those things and more. Forgiveness handles all of that because forgiveness pardons the debt and it heals and, and, and cleans the definement. And both those ideas are captured somewhat. They're, they're implied uh, uh, here in, in our passage in 1 John chapter 1. Look at verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us for all unrighteousness. You see, this kind of forgiveness, it cancels the debt and it cleans. It cleans. This is what God promised he would do all along. Back in Jeremiah 33, verse 8, the prophet said said on behalf of God, I will cleanse my people from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. Again, what's going on there? He's going to cleanse the guilt, and he's going to forgive. He's going to pardon the debt. Brought, upon, brought upon, the, by, upon them by their rebellion and their sin. Colossians 2.14 says, God cancels the record of debt that stood against us 
with all its legal demands. He cancels the debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. That's, that's legal language, right? That's accounting language. It means the record's cleared. The accounts have been settled. There's nothing outstanding in the ledger anymore. But you know, the Bible uses even more dramatic language than that. Let's talk about forgiveness. The Bible has so much to talk about with regard to forgiveness. We're just scratching the surface here today. The Bible says that God takes our sins and, and get this, he, he puts them out of his sight. How dramatic is that? He, he throws them in the trash and the trash is taken away, incinerated, never to be seen or smelled again. Isaiah 38 verse 17 God says, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For, look, you have cast all my sins behind your back. That, that language of casting behind your back, that, 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 that old Hebrew language had to do with discarding. I'm walking this way, I've thrown this that way. I'm never going back to it. It's behind me. Out of my mind. Micah 7.19 says, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The depths of the sea. We know a lot more about the depths of the sea than people did in Micah's day. For us, the depths of the sea have been explored. We know a little bit about what's going on in there. No, for people in Micah's day, the depths of the sea was oblivion. For something to go down into the depths of the sea was to, to cease to exist in this realm. To disappear from reality. God says, that's what I'm done with your sins. Forgiveness means that your sins are not hidden in a closet somewhere where they're going to be pulled out and dragged out one day. They're, they're, they're not stored in a hard drive that, that someone might be able to get into and, and find if they have all the, the, the right equipment and the know-how. No, your sins can't be found if they've been forgiven by God. In the sea means irretrievable, irrecoverable, forgotten and gone. Maybe some of you heard this news story um, recently. Back, back in 1914, Ernest Shackleton and his crew set off from the United Kingdom to explore Antarctica in a ship called the Endurance. Any of you know who Ernest Shackleton is? I found out recently that Ernest Shackleton is, is, a, is a huge hero, one of the top five national heroes in the United Kingdom, apparently. He set off in the Endurance. The Endurance did not endure. They never made it. The, the ship sank off the coast of that icy Antarctic continent. And, and it took over 100 years, but uh, over 100 years later, explorers, expert explorers, were able to find the remains of that ship. The ship was 200 miles under the surface of the ocean, and it was in, in almost pristine condition. And It's being pulled out, I think, and it's going to be put in a museum somewhere two miles under the surface of the sea. It was found. The prophets Isaiah and Micah are telling us that the sins that have been forgiven by God will never be fished out. They'll never be unearthed. No matter how many crack teams of, of expert explorers are out there looking for your sins, they cannot find them if they've been forgiven. No matter how much the enemy throws them in your face, God says, don't know, those don't exist to me anymore. They are gone forever. Imagine that. God himself willfully chooses to never bring them up again. 
He'll never shame you or guilt you or manipulate you with those sins. Other people may do that. To shame and to guilt you, to manipulate you. But not God. He has banished them from his thoughts. In fact, more than that, he has banished them from reality. They do no longer exist. Isaiah 42, 44, verse 22. I love this language. Isaiah 44, 22. I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Disappeared. Not under the rug, but dissipated. Gone into the ether. All of that is captured in this passage, 1 John 1, 9. When John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, not most, all of our unrighteousness. And it's interesting that John doesn't say, notice this, John doesn't say, he is merciful and kind to forgive us our sins. He could have said that. God is, if we confess our sins, he is merciful and kind to forgive us our sins. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that might raise some questions. It does for me. Some weeks back, if you remember this, we were looking at judgment, about God's judgment. And I said that, that, that any judge who overlooks crimes, any judge who ignores injustice, isn't a very good judge. Judges like that are not being faithful to their calling. They are not faithful or just. And what we said back then was that deep down, all of us really want a judge who's going to judge justly, who's going to judge righteously, without favoritism, without bias. John says that God is both faithful and just when he forgives. How is that possible? In, in the United States, you know, the president has the power to pardon people who have been convicted of a crime federal crime. You know this, right? The Constitution gives the the president authority to completely set aside any punishment for for a federal crime for anyone he chooses. Am I the only person that that thinks that's kind of fishy? Like, that doesn't seem right to me for some reason, you know? I'm like, man... Who, who, gets, who gets to get pardoned, right? It, it, it's not unbiased, is it, right? It, maybe it's about who you know or who can lobby on your behalf or how much clout you have to be able to get your story before the president so that he would pardon you or, 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 or exert enough pressure on him to have to pardon you. It just doesn't seem fair. And, and, and it seems even less fair recently because a, a recent president, I remember hearing him talk openly about the possibility of pardoning himself for any possible future crimes. That's fishy, but th- this is, th- that's not what God's like, by the way. That's not what God's like. God, in his forgiveness, is faithful and just. Recently, there's been discussion around the topic of debt forgiveness for student loans. And some of you who are carrying student loans, may- maybe they'll be forgiven. Who knows? I'm not deeply informed about all of that, but but I do know that one objection to, to that policy of, of debt forgiveness is that it's simply not fair. After all, some would look at that and say, hey, I, I, it was hard for me to pay my student loans, but I did it. And, and didn't you know? You knowingly incurred this debt. It's only fair that you pay that debt. Plus, if that debt's forgiven, 
it doesn't just disappear, does it? Like mist, like a cloud. <laughs> no, we, we suspect that someone's going to have to end up paying that debt at some point. Who's it going to be? The, the, the taxpayers, perhaps. These are some of the objections that I've heard, right? I don't want to pay someone else's student loan. So, so canceling debts, on the one hand, it might seem merciful and kind to some, but to others it might come off as unjust. And that, that takes us to our third question. How is forgiveness conferred? That is, how do we get forgiveness? And, 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 and in what way can we say that God is faithful and just when he forgives us of our sins? How is forgiveness conferred? Well, let's look at it from God's side. Forgiveness is conferred. It's given through atonement. Through atonement. 1 John 1.7 says, It's the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. We could, we could miss that line so quickly, so easily. It's the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. That means that forgiveness is not just a wave of the hand. Forgiveness costs Jesus everything. Forgiveness is always costly. You know this. If there's a debt, someone's going to need to absorb it. If there's been an offense, someone's going to have to experience the consequences of it. Either it's going to be the one who got offended or it's going to be the one who committed the offense. Someone's got to pay the price. Someone's got to pay the debt. When God forgives, he says, I will do that. I will absorb the debt. I pay for it. That's what the blood in 1 John 1 is talking about in verse 7. The blood there is Christ's atoning death. It's a death that made up for, that paid for. When God forgives, he says, I absorb the offense. I absorb not just the penalty. He says, I absorb the hurt. I absorb the shame. I absorb the humiliation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, these, these words were, 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 were built into one of the songs that we sang earlier. For our sake, God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin whom knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how forgiveness is conferred. That's what it costs. It costs Jesus himself becoming sin. So that we might become righteousness of God. If you've been around church for a while, maybe even if you haven't been around church for a while, you can start to take all that for granted. And you might start to think, well, God forgives because that's who he is. Like, that's what God does. God's job is to forgive. We sin, God forgives. That's, that's kind of our job descriptions, right? And we lose sight of the fact that forgiveness always costs the forgiver something, doesn't it? You know this in your own experience. Whenever you've, been, whenever you've had to forgive someone and you've struggled to forgive someone who hurt you, what made it so hard? Because you knew that in forgiving, you were going to pay a cost. It's what makes forgiving so difficult. But, but somehow when it comes to God, we think, oh, none of that applies to him. He's like a forgiveness machine. He just makes it happen. It's easy. No. No. We lose sight of the fact that forgiveness is a willful choice that hurts that costs. We struggle deeply with it, but we can start to assume that we're entitled to it from God. The Bible goes to great lengths to disabuse us of that, to show us, no, 
No, there's nothing cheap about the forgiveness that God offers us. It costs the blood of Christ. That's why we can say, verse 9, that God is faithful and just when he forgives. Not just kind and merciful and lenient. No, he is faithful and just when he forgives because he personally, in the person and work of Jesus, on a cross, God himself absorbed the debt. Justice was satisfied. He absorbed the debt that he forgave. He didn't pass it on. He didn't kick down the road. He said, I will pay it. He absorbed the punishment for the crimes that he pardoned. It's very easy to issue a pardon and sign a presidential pardon, perhaps. That says, no, I, I will pay for this. It cost the blood of Christ. Romans 3, 23 to 26. We won't even explain now. I'll just read it to you and... and We can just kind of absorb the beauty of what God is saying in this passage. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification here involves forgiveness. It's forgiveness by God's grace. It's a gift. But look at the cost of this gift. It's in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is, as an atonement to appease wrath by his blood to be received by faith. That is to show God's righteousness. Yeah, God's not just lenient and nice. This is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time so that he might Be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's only through what happened at the cross that God can say, I am just. I did exact judgment on myself, on my own son, so that I can be just and at the same time I can forgive sinners who believe in Christ. So today's Palm Sunday, and um, it's the beginning of, of Passion Week, right? Or it, it, it's setting up Passion Week, I should say, and, 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 and it's leading us down this road during which Christ would begin his march to the cross. All debt forgiveness has to come at cost to someone. On Palm Sunday, Jesus walked rode into Jerusalem, and he was praised, he was honored, he was lauded, exalted. But he knew, he knew that he would soon be paying a cost. He knew that he'd soon be giving up his life. He knew that he'd be getting dirty in the mess of our sins. And he willingly did it. It was the only way to forgive, and he walked toward it. And he wasn't motivated by obligation. No, he was motivated by love, as we sang about earlier, too. What amazing love. 1 John 4, just a few chapters later in the same letter, the apostle John says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love. Forgiveness is rooted 
in love. So how is it conferred to us from God's side? Well, it required Christ's death. It required payment. It required the crucifixion. But from our side, how do we get forgiveness from our side? And many of us know this. I hope, I hope you don't get tired of being reminded of this. But we get forgiveness, our passage tells us in verse 9, if we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does confession mean, New Hope? What does confession mean? We might think of it as, as admitting one's mistakes. It's admitting fault. Maybe it's even accepting blame. Confession's hard, right? Especially when we stop thinking about it in terms of mistakes and we start thinking it in terms of like willful, intentional offenses that we carry the blame for. If I admit that I'm a sinner, it says here, God will forgive me. Is that all it's saying here, though? If I admit that I'm a sinner, God will forgive me. In order to understand what, what this word means, we, we have to look a little bit more closely. And frankly, in order to understand what a word means in the Bible, we often have to look at the context of how it's being used. We can look elsewhere at where it's used in other parts of the Bible. And, and, and what we'll find, for instance, is that this concept of confession comes up a lot in the Bible. You know, what it, you know it, it, it usually shows up around another concept. The concept of confession usually shows up right next to the concept of repentance. Repentance. Psalm 51 is a prime example. In Psalm 51, King David is, 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 is seemingly crushed by the weight of his sin. He's done evil, awful things. And so what he does is he, he confesses these things to God and implicit in and built into, and even explicitly in that confession, there's also this commitment on his part. I'm confessing this to you, Lord, and I want to leave it behind. I want you to throw it behind your back, but I want to throw it behind my back, Lord. I want to walk away from this. I don't want to live like this anymore. You see, King David openly admits to God his failures, even though God already knew those failures, but he also repents. He repents. Repent means to, to turn away, to change direction. It means to leave something behind. So, so repentance isn't just remorse over sin. That's just the beginning of repentance. Repentance is, is remorse over sin that leads to a renouncing of sin. So when you've got remorse plus renouncing, now, now you've got some repentance. And confession and repentance go together. They must always go together. What's the point of admitting failure without any intention of turning away from it? What's the point of admitting failure to God while at the same time thinking, um, I'm not going to stop this, but I just figured I'd tell you. Just inform you. This is what I did. And, and, and it's also kind of what I plan to do in the future. But I'm just, I'm just being honest with you. To confess and repent means to be realistic about sin. To have remorse over it and to renounce it. And, and whenever we see confession and repentance in the Bible, it's also always connected with another word. It's connected with faith. You see, faith, confession, and repentance always go together. Faith is belief. Who is going to confess sin to a God that they don't believe in? Makes no sense. Who's going to confess sin to God if they don't believe that God will forgive them? Don't confess to a God who's not willing to forgive you. 
So look, when John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us, he, he confessed there. That one word, confess, it captures the whole picture. It captures all of that. It's a humble admitting to sin by a person who believes, even, even if they believe weakly, but they believe that Jesus died for me. Motivated by love, he died. He absorbed the debt. He took my shame. And, and now I want to turn away from my sin. I want to turn away from that self-worship, that, that idol worship, uh, the lawlessness. I want to turn away from that. I want to renounce all of it. I'm coming to you, Lord. That's what's built into that word confession. It's more than just admitting our mistakes. You know, John has another way of referring to it. In verse 7, he calls it walking in light. Walking in light. Look what he says, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light. Walking in the light and confessing are, are kind of the same thing. They, they go together. Because what are you doing when you confess and you repent and you believe in Jesus? You're, you're, you're walking into the light and away from the darkness. Out of the shadows. You're accepting truth. You're accepting all that God says about your sin and about forgiveness. Walking in the light is a turning away from darkness that says, Lord, I believe in you, so, so I'm willing to confess. I'm, I'm willing to repent. I think it's safe to believe in you and repent because, because I believe that you are who you say you are. Our confession, by the way, is never, confession is never perfect, right? None of us has ever confessed verbally every single f- failing and sin. Just like our faith is never perfect. It's always mingled with some doubt and disbelief, isn't it? Just like our repentance is never perfect. We never turn away completely and permanently. There's always this kind of shiftiness in us. And so certainly our confession, our faith, our repentance are never perfect, but they are real. They are real and they matter. And God says that when you do this, when you believe, you confess and you repent, you will find complete forgiveness. It's finished. It's finished. You don't have to get forgiveness again. The forgiveness that God has granted you is once for all. If you have believed in Christ, you have been forgiven for past sins, those that you remember and those that you don't remember, and you've been forgiven for future sins. Even the ones that that you can't even imagine yourself doing, the the kinds of sins that you might look at and say, I would never do that. Maybe you're right, I hope you are, but God knows whether you have it in you or not. God knows your worst failure, and he knows whether your worst failure is even still ahead of you. And he says that if you have confessed, repented, believed, you have found complete forgiveness. It is finished. It is finished. God doesn't go on, keep updating the ledger. The ledger is done. It's closed. Now, of course, that one time repentance, confession, and faith is meant to then play itself out in a lifetime of confessing and repenting and believing. Not so we can get forgiven once again and again and again. The forgiveness is done. But our job as we live as forgiven people in this world is to keep confessing our sins. Keep repenting and turning away from them. And keep believing the gospel again and again and again. 
I'm going to end today just thinking briefly about this question. How does forgiveness change us? How does forgiveness change us? Well, according to John, once we're forgiven, we just keep walking in the light. That's how we got forgiven, walking into the light. We just keep walking into the light. That means walking according to truth. Walking, walking in light of reality. The reality that, yes, we are sinful. And the reality that we have been forgiven by holy God. You see, forgiveness is meant to change us. It motivates us to, to obedience. It motivates us to live a certain way. John's going to get at this a little later in the same letter in chapter 3. He's going to say, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We might also say the works of darkness. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So on the one hand, John says, if you say there's no sin in you, you're a liar. But he says also, if you say you believed in Christ and you just keep sinning, there's no repentance, there's no confession, there's no turning away. He's saying, you're, you lied when you said you believed. Your confession was a fake. It was counterfeit. We can't receive forgiveness and then keep on walking in darkness. That's what John is saying. And this might sound harsh to us. It sounds challenging to us. But it's true. Forgiveness motivates obedience. Forgiveness also motivates honesty in us. We can be honest about our sins. We don't need, if you've been forgiven, you don't need to hide anything anymore. Remember, John said it in, in chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He's saying, stop deceiving yourself. You're walking in the light now. Someone says you're a sinner, you say, yes, I know, you too, but I'm probably worse. That's how we can answer. That's how we can speak to our own sins. I'm the worst sinner I know. Walking in the light does not mean that, 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 that walking in the light doesn't mean you never sin. But it does mean that you you don't stay in that sin. It also means that you don't hide the sin from God. You, you confess it. Because it's living in the light. You're open about it. Because we all know that sin thrives in darkness, doesn't it? Sin, sin grows more powerful in darkness. And I just heard this phrase recently. The, the best disinfectant in the world is sunlight. Sunlight's a great disinfectant, apparently. So when we bring our sins and our dirtiness into the sunlight, into the light of God, what do we receive? Cleansing, forgiveness. We no longer have to fear the light. Anyone who's living a double life, anyone who's living in, 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 in hidden unfaithfulness, hidden addiction, hidden sinfulness, you fear the light, don't you? You're afraid that it's all going to come out one day. Your reputation's going to be ruined. Everyone's going to know who you really are. When we have received forgiveness from Christ, we don't need to fear that light anymore. We come out into it. And then lastly, we'll end here. Forgiveness motivates forgiveness. <laughs> forgiveness motivates forgiveness. We're, we're not just sinners here, New Hope. We're all sufferers too. That is, we've sinned against others, and others sure have sinned against us, haven't they? We've been hurt. Receiving forgiveness from Christ enables us to now extend forgiveness to those who have hurt us deeply. 
we don't have, even have time to crack it open, but read Luke 7 and read the, the, the parable that Christ tells there about two people who are forgiven a debt and how he expects those who, whose debt is forgiven to then become radically debt-forgiving people. <laughs> forgiveness doesn't, for us, forgiveness on, on a human level doesn't always mean reconciliation. I think I should make that clear. Just someone hurts you deeply, abuses you, harms you. Forgiveness doesn't mean that your relationship's going to go completely back to what it once was. Reconciliation and forgiveness are two separate things. In the gospel, God forgives us and he reconciles us to himself. But in our human relationship, sometimes we, we forgive, but reconciliation is still out of reach. Can't get there. If someone is unrepentant, someone is unwilling but forgiveness does says, I'm not going to hold this over you. Forgiveness says, I'm going to let go of the bitterness. I'm, I'm going to let go of that, 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 that vengeance. Forgiveness says to one who has hurt you, it doesn't say, oh, it's all good, I'm fine. No, no, no. Forgiveness says, I'm not coming for payback. I'm entrusting this to the Lord. That doesn't mean that you don't pursue justice and through other means, if there's been crimes have been committed against you, as a Christian, you are within, well within your rights to pursue justice legally, for instance. I want to read this quote to you. I know I'm, I'm went a little over here, but I'm going to read this in the end. But some of you might know the name of a woman named Rachel Denholander. Rachel Denholander was uh, a one-time gymnast. She's an attorney now, and she's an advocate for victims of sexual abuse. She was the very first woman to... to, to um, uh, to bring charges against Larry Nasser, who was a physician who for decades abused hundreds and hundreds of um, gymnasts, female, um, I think only female gymnasts, but I'm not sure. And um, Den Highlander has, has, as someone who is a Christian, a believer in God's word, has to wrestle with, with this tension between what does it look like for me to forgive, but also seek justice legally? <laughs> She was instrumental in getting Larry Nasser sent to jail for the rest of his life. He'll die in prison. And he's destroyed so many lives. But here's what Rachel Denholander says about this tension between forgiveness and, uh, and justice. She says, in forgiveness, the things that are being released are personal to me. If I forgive, what I am releasing is my personal retaliation, my personal resentment, my personal right to vengeance. But justice... Justice is conformity to a standard outside of me. That means that I can release my personal retaliation and that outside standard still exists. It still calls evil evil without minimizing, mitigating, or downplaying. So she's saying, I can release, I'm not going to seek vengeance against my abuser, but I'm going to see to it that my abuser faces justice under the laws of this nation wherein he committed these crimes. But ultimately, she says, even if that doesn't work, even if justice is not brought through the courts, I know this. There is a lawgiver who will one day bring justice. He, every sin will be paid for. Either it will be paid for in the body of Christ for all those who believe in him or it will be paid for through the direct experience of God's wrath and eternity for those who refuse to believe in Christ. This is why forgiveness is possible for us. Do you believe in forgiveness? I do. 
It's a reality for us, and it's a reality that we can extend to others. May God give us grace to do that. Lord, help us to walk in the light. Help us to walk in the light of what you've done for us. Help us to live with the full knowledge of the fact that we are forgiven. We are no longer stained. We no longer need to be ashamed. We no longer need to carry the the burden of guilt. And Lord, give us the grace to then extend that forgiveness to other people who have done us wrong. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.